Star jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. You should be able to hear the magnetic resonance. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good evening, or morning, or afternoon, whatever is relevant for the part of the world you're in. Indeed, welcome to the event horizon where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time for a journey into science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. Each week, the event horizon features writers, lecturers, artists, filmmakers, and other talented creators of the fabric of this marvelous continuum we call science fiction. I'm your host, Gene Turnbow, founder and station manager for Krypton Radio. And with me this evening are Susan Fox, the station's executive producer. Good evening. And David Clark and Walter Bryant of Offshoot Comics. And our special guest this evening is Reginald Nelson, the creator and mastermind behind a remarkable new... Uh, radio series, science fiction radio series called The Primordials. Reginald, welcome, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you so much, Gene. Thank you, Susan. thank you, Susan. I'm glad to be here. Do you prefer Reginald, or what? What do we call you? Oh, Reggie's fine. Reginald, Reggie, oh, okay. Reggie. great. <laughs> Reggie's fine. All right. So, um, the uh, The Primordials is an urban fantasy serial podcast based on the pantheon of gods inspired by the Yoruba, cult- y- Yoruba, Yoruba culture of West Africa. And uh, when Shango and Ogun are banished from their celestial kingdom of Ife, they embark on a four-century earthly odyssey full of labor and redemption. We've been listening to it, and we've got to say the storytelling and the production values appeal way beyond the African-American audience. Maybe we don't know much about the Orishas going on, going in, but we learn along the way as we battle the as they battle the angry gods, corrupt politicians, scorned voodoo queens, vampires, and terrorists in post-Katrina New Orleans. And we, I just we switched it on, and Reggie, I've got to say, we were hooked in the first ten seconds. It was that good. Oh, thank you, thank you. That that, that means a lot to me. That really means a lot to me. Thank you so much. We put a lot of work. Uh, into it, and uh, I'm I'm really I'm really excited for the uh, response uh, we've received so far. <clears throat> so, where where did this all begin? What was the genesis of it? Was it was it you know Hurricane Katrina itself? Did you have folks uh, who were affected by the hurricane? Uh, no. Well, it, it, it's I guess uh, everybody did. You know, but. Uh, well, you. Uh, Hurricane Katrina is, is clearly a, a part of it. I, I was always growing. I'm originally from Chicago, 
But uh, for some reason, two cities always fascinated me as a kid. It was New Orleans and uh, and San Francisco for some reason. You know, and uh, uh-huh. they're both old cities. They're both the oldest cities in their regions, and I think they old are. Things yeah. have a special fascination, a special legend and lore all their own. No, they do. They do. And uh, uh, so I was all, and I'm always been a student and lover of history and and whatnot. So I I, oh, I, I went to a, a predominantly black school, Howard University in Washington D.C. And uh, so there I learned about the history of jazz music and and in general and New Orleans and Louisiana in particular. So I always wanted to write a story set in New Orleans. And of course, I was a comic book lover. So I wanted to do like a short film originally uh, before Katrina, before the events of Hurricane Katrina. But when the the events of Hurricane Katrina happened, I just kind of I was talking to my to my partner, Neil, Neil Lewis. He's also the uh, co-creator of the Primordial. He uh, plays the part of Shango, right? He does. He does the voice uh, of Shango. And uh, so after Katrina, Neil and I was just talking about how can we adapt the story and we came up with uh, the idea of a of an audio drama, and also just asking ourselves, what if uh, Hurricane Katrina was really an act of uh, of God? You know, because up until that time, you know, obviously pre Hurricane Sandy, we had never seen or witnessed uh, a natural disaster in this country of of that magnitude. So, I was uh, extremely riveted by that whole disaster of Katrina. So that's kind of where it, it began, right there. So you wanted your original plan was to do uh, to do a film. Yes, to do kind of uh, to do like a a short film, mm-hmm. uh, and, and it was going to involve kind of the Yoruba culture and the Orishas because New Orleans just had this kind of mystical uh, mythology and 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 uh, supernatural lore to it all its own you know so i I know i I knew i wanted to do something uh set in new orleans and and also let me just back up a little bit i come from a theater background and i I started a theater company called congo square theater company and uh, congo square is an actual place in new orleans that historians believe is the birthplace of jazz music so that was just me once again. So fast forward years later, when I wanted to do like a short film dealing with kind of these uh, these African gods, because uh, Marvel Comics Thor and Hercules, and there was a real influence on me as a kid growing up. And, and you know, I always wondered just as, a, as an African-American kid growing up, I was like, well, Thor and Hercules, those are, you know, those are two, only two uh gods kind of in in the world cultures i was like well where aren't there any african gods or or, or i'm not uh, sure storm counts <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> no 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 i don't think so storm storm yeah she was, was sort of a, a queen and a, a, a storm was very much mortal they, I, they I, called her you know the goddess of of the village she she you know guarded, but it's she bore no relationship to any you know mythology that we know of. So yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. No, no, she didn't. And uh, so that's that's kind of what what inspired me. You know, getting back to like Marvel with uh, Hercules and 
and Thor and then the Eternals and the Inhumans. So I just wanted to, to kind of uh, fulfill that niche, so to speak. Makes sense. Everybody wants to see their own people and their own gods. I mean, you got to do better than, than they did with Thor. I have I have nitpicks. About. Whoop. Whoops. <laughs> we, still, oh, we haven't lost anybody. Okay, okay. good. Mm-hmm. You well, still... the Avengers redeemed. I think I, I think he redeemed himself a little bit in the Avengers. Well, Thor's supposed to have a re- big red beard for one thing, you know, and he kicked a lot more butt than he even does in the comics. So, yeah, yeah no, that's true. The characterization that's... is good. The visuals are just all wrong. Right. They're doing good things with Loki, though. Not enough cross dressing. <laughs> No, absolutely. But you know, Stan Lee and those guys—they were, they were, they were. And Jack, Stan Lee and especially uh, Jack Kirby—they were influenced by that, you know, by those those early cultures, you know. So uh, um, I forget the name of that book, uh, "The Chariots of the Gods," I think. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I think that's influenced Neil Gaiman as well uh, when he wrote, redid a uh, version of the Eternals. Uh, what was that back in in? In the early 2000s, maybe about a decade ago. Wow! But the Eternals or the Endless? He did. He did. He he did something with the Eternals. Uh, I want to say maybe about eight years ago, he did a miniseries about the Eternals, and in the forward, he talked about that that book, Chariots of the God. I think. Oh God, I'm messing well, up the name. Yeah, it is Chariots of the Gods with a question mark, and that's kind of the that was the first place where. The first pop culture rendition of the possibility that, uh, you know, they were ancient astronauts in, you know, depicted in these old, you know, ancient, you know, cave paintings and whatnot. Right. 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 No, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, he mentioned the influence that book had on him uh, in the 70s when it when it came out. And uh, so that's kind of the premise, again, of the primordials, that the primordials are. They're real. Yeah, that they're they're the first. They're the first aliens to land, if you will, if you want to take that premise. The first aliens to land uh, uh, in Africa, in West Africa. Well, that makes sense. The first aliens should be on the first continent. Right. Well, this this uh, this relates to a degree to uh, to a project that uh, the boys at Offshoot are working on. Uh, I'm actually ostensibly going to be working on the book as an artist. Oh wow! Uh, David uh, Walter. Yeah, um, well, actually, I, I, a lot of what you said um, comes down to why we even created this company to begin with. Because, like, you know as well as we do, with the exception of, say, like, Black Panther and Black Lightning, there aren't a whole lot of superheroes who look like us. Right. You know, and, and um, we have a lot of rich his- history and rich culture and that, that hasn't been tapped at all. Yeah. And along with other, you know, ethnic groups as well, just... You know, every time a magic ring or a hammer falls out of the sky, it really can't be to the same white guy in New York. Look <laughs> <laughs> at the numbers; that is impossible. There are so many of them. <laughs> yeah, right now, no, you're right. <clears throat> I'm absolutely fascinated by the uh, by this entire uh, this entire extra celestial kingdom. Of course, it makes sense that. There would be other cultures and other uh, and other pantheons of gods that uh, you know. As a white boy growing up in Oregon, I never would have heard of, and I think it's absolutely entrancing that we get to explore this 
in the primordials. Well, honestly, uh, as, a, as a black guy growing up in Tennessee, I didn't hear a lot about those either. But <laughs> I, I also went to a historically black college. I went to Xavier in New Orleans. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So um, when I got there, it, it was funny. You know, I got to, I, it was actually the first time I'd been around that many black people at one time. And, <laughs> and so, you know, I, I got to an African-American studies and I, and I read the book Sundiata. And it really that that opened my that opened my eyes to like a lot of different things um, that that our culture that our culture had. And then getting into say manga and stuff. Then you know like the Japanese culture. There there's so many Japanese gods and things like that. So your 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 the ba- basis of your story here really actually intrigued me. Right. No. 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 Thank you. Thank you. And the uh, Sundiata is the uh, uh, just for the audience who said, oh, um, a Mayan tale. I believe uh, set in, in in West Africa. I read that years ago, as well. And um, and yeah, and that's that's just basically, you know, what it is. I remember I had a um, a professor of mine was an old Jewish lady uh, uh, teaching at Howard University, and she said something I thought was pro- kind of profound. She said we were studying uh, a raisin in the sun at the time. Oh and yes. She, she was saying that the more specific something is, the more universal it is actually. You know, is is when you try to when you water stuff down and try to make it appeal to so many different people, that's when it that's when it rings untrue and it, it becomes uninteresting. You know, it becomes quote unquote commercial. But so I just always remembered that 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 quote she she told us in class that the more specific something is, actually the more universal it is, because you realize at the end of the day we're all just men and women and we fall in and out of love and you know, and it's only which they say it's only like what maybe five different stories that we keep telling over and over again uh, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and I, the uh, the texture, and this gets back to the uh, the texture of the 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 first episode. Just you set the scene so well, and uh, we can it, tell your jazz background not to <laughs> right. not, not to uh, reveal any spoilers, but the setting of the first scene is you know. That is, that it's is where just, jazz is. It is it? so <laughs> it's so engaging and it's so deep and it's so rich and it's it uh uh having having the courage to just sort of uh uh step com- take the take the initial mold that so many of these sorts of stories uh are just popped out of and just throw that away and and work in a completely different cultural context. There's uh, and no, yet, there's no, yeah. there's no unknown orphans. There's no uh, uh, magic rings. There's yeah, there's just... no magic rings. There's no uh, uh, magic girlfriend falling out of the sky. It's something <laughs> completely new. No, no, no. Uh, thank you, thank you. No, and, and like I say, uh, and, and and we've getting, we've received a lot of response from uh, the military, like some soldiers overseas as well. They listen to, believe it or not, they're really into uh, audio dramas as a way wow, of uh, that makes sense, doesn't it? It's something you can listen to on a little iPad or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So MP3 player. So you stepped away from the idea of doing film at a certain. What was the point at which you decided? I think I can do better with this as a radio play. Well, honestly, it was, uh, uh, financially, financially, it was, uh, we thought I came up with the idea that an audio drama was, was much more cost effective, 
than trying to put together a short film with with special effects in order to do it right. You know what I mean? Because I still needed uh -huh. special effects and and all of this, and, and it was hard for me to tell it on a on as epic as a scale. With with the audio drama, you give the uh, listeners a, a really rich experience in terms of you you can still do the special effects, you can change locations. You have talented actors who can do multiple uh, accents. So you, we really got a chance to uh, tell the story. Neil and I got a chance to tell the story on a truly epic scale that was really, really cost effective, you know, and still and gave people a, a unique experience. So I don't know. I don't know what eventually made me uh, say, let's do a, a audio drama, but uh, definitely finances had something to do with that. And if someone wants to, you know, give you several million dollars and say, let's make the primordials, the motion picture, you're going to consider it. This is a hint. Your script listeners. is halfway there. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we, we definitely, we definitely will. I, uh, in the meantime, I, I'm going to, I'm launching, uh, starting in a couple of weeks, I'm going to launch a Kickstarter campaign. We're going to turn it into an anime project. That's awesome. What a great idea. Yeah, since we already have the voices, since we already have the voices, now I'm, I'm working with an animator. We're going to adapt the audio drama into, a, into an anime series, and we're going to do book two, Moon Over Bourbon Street, when they confront the vampires. About that title. <laughs> <laughs> we're playing that song by Sting on Krypton Radio. It's been in rotation most of the time. And it's clear the, the story of the vampire Lestat, which is, which is set in New Orleans. So Sting is an Anne Rice fan. Um, how long has, has the vampire been part of New Orleans supernatural lore? Did, did Anne Rice start that, or have they been been there all along? Uh, you know, I, I, think Anne, I think Anne Rice started that. You know, uh, as far as I know, I, I grew up a, a huge Sting fan. So yeah. I, I I love that song and I love that album, that Dream of Blue Turtles album. Not everybody so, knows that song. Everyone, you know, that's not that that wasn't one of you know the hit singles. So yeah, no, I, I appreciate uh, it. I appreciate that, that someone's quoting it, but no, but, <laughs> no, but I, no, but I was a huge I was a huge uh, Sting fan back in the day. Mm -hmm. So for some reason that that song always uh, stuck with me. So I really so I got the the inspiration to write that particular storyline, actually not so much from Anne Rice, but act literally from that song, from the Sting song. Okay. Yeah, so um, uh, that, that was my inspiration. You know, Sting was kind of uh, inspired by Anne Rice, and I was in turn inspired by Sting. So that's kind of how that, just kind of kicking the can uh, down the street in, in that regard, artistic can. Uh, so real quick, though, speaking about, about characters, we had a, a question on how they're written. We know a lot of times in, in comics and you know in other you know sci-fi media, whenever they write people who aren't white, whatever is different about them, like whether they be gay or black or whatever, that tends to become their entire world. When you know Galactus is attacking, they're more worried about you know you know being black. Well, our question is, you know, is that how it is in, in your thing, or is it, are they more worried about just being God? Uh, well, are my characters? Yeah. No, no, no. Uh, my characters, um, just to give you 
uh, some background. No, my characters were uh, were banished uh, down to earth uh, because, uh, and it, it always involves a woman because uh, the two guys <laughs> fell in when love with women. women. That's it's it. One of those. One of those. One of one of the five stories. Sexism, racism. Sorry, yeah, go uh, on, go on, Reginald. No, one of the five stories. The kind of the backstory is is that uh, the gods, uh, um, Shango and Ogun. Shango is the god of, of thunder and lightning. He's kind of uh, like the uh, the West African version of Thor, and he, instead of a, a hammer, he carries a double headed axe. And Ogun is kind of the god of canines and vegetation. He's a He's, for lack of a better description, I was like, he's like the, uh, like a Wolverine slash Hulk character. You know, just very, very uh, out. Dogs and trees. Like, yeah, just you tell him that. I dare <laughs> not, you <laughs> say that out loud. Yeah, and not, and not the uh, god of dogs and trees. It's uh, kind of a different aspect. I'm, I'm of hearing that. clicks. That's bad. <laughs> Are you still there? Oh, we did it now. Technical difficulties. Are we are we still with you, Reggie? Yeah, you know, I'm still here. All right. And what about you, David and and Walter? Yeah, we're here. All right, okay. Okay. I I thought I just pissed I just thought I'd pissed everybody off and they all hung up on me. You know, I say it's better to be pissed off than pissed on. (laughs) No, it's all good. It's all good. It's It's all good. Oh, all right. It's fine. What happens is the, uh, the king and Ife banish uh, Shango and Ogun down to earth uh, for about 300 years. He strips them of their power and they become slaves and they kind of live through the slave trade. They, they, they uh, travel to Brazil and then Cuba and Haiti before finally landing in New Orleans. So they, and they start they, Santeria. <laughs> they start. <laughs> yeah, they start. No, they literally. They the 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 the, uh, the concept is that they are the ones that kind of brought that African culture to the New World. It was these two guys, and they didn't get their powers back until Hurricane Katrina. But the storyline is is that um, the gods sent Shango and Ogun their powers back through the hurricane, but the hurricane was so powerful that some of the some of the uh, the Ashe powers that the Yoruba gods possess spilled over into the evacuees. So you have some mortal evacuees who possess some of that godly power. And, and Shango and Ogun's new mission is to retrieve that power back from the evacuees. And I'm guessing not all the evacuees are really willing to are really going to be interested in cooperating with that. No, no, no. Oh, no, of course not. Of course not. One charismatic leader named uh, Dr. Soinka, he has other plans. But that's the first uh, storyline to a- uh, to answer your question. Uh, was it uh, uh, was it Walter? David. That was David. Hey, David. Okay. You know, David, so uh, these guys have been kind of living down uh, on Earth for the past uh, 300 years. So they're very well adapted in, in, into mortal life. And their current identity because if you're immortal you got to change your identity you know every what 70 years right before people figure out hey hey hey, dude you never age but uh in their current identity they're music producers uh living here in new orleans they've been there since jazz was born they were the midwives of jazz probably they are they are 
They are. And uh, so now their new mission, once they retrieved, once they uh, rounded up all the mortals uh, who who received that power during Hurricane Katrina, now that they've completed their mission, they're now are going to stay uh, in New Orleans to help rebuild the city from the destruction of, of Hurricane Katrina, which some of the gods inadvertently, inadvertently uh, caused. So they're, uh, they're really the good guys here. Uh, they're, they're trying to put things back the way they were and restore balance, and that includes collecting the powers from the, the people who got parts of their power accidentally. So I imagine some of the people who got these powers are really ready to give them back because they can't control them. And other people want to keep them because... Uh, give, because it's power. Yeah, because it's power. And, you know, everybody needs a leg up from time to time. Yeah. If, if the hurricane was caused by them getting their powers back, what happens when people find out? When they, uh, they, they when they discover what happens when they discover that they have the powers, what sorts of yeah, situations no, arise? Well, what happens? <laughs> Somebody, yeah, well, everybody well, wants someone. To one, well, one of the devices, one of the devices is uh, as a storyteller, I'm a firm believer in uh, in in secrecy. You know, meaning uh, Shango and Ogun try and hide their powers from. The general public, because they don't want, you know, they're, they they don't want the, the public to know, you know, that they're alien beings walking about. And we do have like an, a, a government. You always got to have like that X Files type government agents uh, investigating these strange anomalies. But it's the same thing too with with the mortals. It's like there. I I I believe that true power, you you know, kind of lies in its uh, subversiveness. You know, be it you being a good guy or a bad guy, I just I, that was probably one of my least favorite aspects of Iron Man is when Robert Downey at the end of the mo- movie go, uh, yeah. By the way, I am Iron Man. Well, ab- apparently uh, the third movie addresses this matter and why it's a bad idea to go public. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, yeah, I just uh, one of the few one of the few heroes that ever did that, and uh, yeah. Not so wonderful an idea. Yeah, no, 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 <laughs> absolutely not. I was just like, my God, you know, even even as a small kid, I would be like, well, no, idiot. If he's <laughs> Iron Man, well, he lives just he lives right up there on Pacific Coast Highway. Let's go get him. You know, <laughs> he goes to Starbucks every, every Tuesday morning. He goes. Whoops, we're we're breaking up there. No, this is fun. Hi, guys. Yeah, we had a little, we had some connection problems, and we had to uh, reconnect with Reggie. Okay, bring up our All right. So we were at twenty-five minutes. Yeah, we're at twenty-five. That's all right. We're all right. We're fine. So yeah, we were just commenting, you know, that uh, technology uh, sometimes has its way with us. I'm a firm believer that that uh, smoke is what makes all of our technology work. And my proof of that is that if the smoke gets out of the computer, it stops working. It's the magic smoke theory. the magic theory. smoke Mercedes theory of technology. Lackey. I heard that originally from Mercedes Lackey, not one of our leading technologists, although a best-selling writer. Anyway, <laughs> meanwhile, back at the Orisha. 
So we've got a funny story, which may relate to our current uh, uh, technical difficulties. We tried to download the first chapter on our tablets, and they kept crashing when they got to the part about a legba. <laughs> Uh-oh. The famous trickster god. And I've decided that uh, Elegba is also related to Coyote and Puka, Bugs Bunny, and Mr. Mix's Piddlick. <laughs> and uh, uh, maybe uh, Ambush Bug. Ambush bug. <laughs> <laughs> we could do a whole... We could do a whole hour on the trickster god in, <laughs> in uh, modern literature, and maybe we'll... we'll yeah, maybe we'll get to that. that. We have a... Uh, a friend of ours uh, who's just uh, published his first novel, Rob Soyder. Uh, he he published a florist and storyteller himself. He's he's I think he's on par with Joseph Campbell, uh, frankly, personally. His depth of and of knowledge in mythology is that deep. Oh, uh, wow. And he just published his first book called Brass Jack, Little Lost Princeling, and it's the first of the Brass Jack series. And man, does this guy bring a lot to the table. Anyway, this is this is one of the th- one of the things that really attracts us to, to, to the primordials, and because you obviously have this very deep, rich understanding of, of the mythology that you're working with and the characters and weaving your characters, which are not self-conscious, uh, self-consciously gods or self-consciously ethnic or anything of the they're sort. They're just living their, their they're, lives. They're living they're... in that universe, and that is so such an enticing, uh, uh, an, an, an enticing feature of, of the series. And I think why, uh, if you listen to The Primordials, you can go to the website, it's theprimordials.com, and you can download the episodes... Uh, and listen to them, and they are absolutely engaging. Yeah, the first two books, each book of four episodes, is also available on iTunes under podcasts. So know that. And uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you, uh, the uh, the production values on your shows is so high. How long? What's your what's your production process for doing one of these episodes? And how long does it take you to get through it? Um, well, the process it's usually like uh, I want to say maybe a uh, six-week process, maybe from from conception all the way to uh, execution. Uh-huh. And and so, like any writer, you know, you get an idea. You kind of talk it through with your partner. Then you out you out you research the idea. And then you do an outline. Then you do a uh, a rough draft. Uh-huh. And, and so I write the rough draft and I give it to Neil and he gives me his notes. Then I write another draft. So I write about two drafts uh, before I uh, call in the actors and do like a table read or a read through. Uh-huh. And, uh, and so that's, that's where you start finding the stuff that looks good on paper but doesn't sound good when you read it. Right, absolutely, absolutely. And you give the actors time to chime in, and if words aren't uh, coming correctly out of, out of their mouths, you know, you want to try and uh, adapt it to, to suit that actor. You know, it's, like I say, I come from the theater, so that was, I kind of took that playwriting or theatrical process and applied it to the audio dramas. So you give the actors feedback early on so they have ownership in the, in the performance and in the characters. So uh, once the actors have a table reading, then you do a rewrite. 
And then we we go into the sound booth, you know. And since I have some really, really good actors, a guy named Antonio Charity, who's the voice of Ogun, I've, I've known him for years, and uh, he's a really sh uh, strong stage actor. You know, you have your guys and girls come in there, and uh, we rented out a studio for about uh, eight hours, and they come in and, and we record uh, all four episodes uh, in about uh, eight hour span. So each episode is 15 minutes. Uh -huh. So we're looking at, we're talking about 15 pages. So that's roughly about 60 pages we record in, in an eight hour time time frame. You don't do a lot of retakes, I, I would imagine. I mean, it, it's... No, what, what happens is I, I come in and I record my narration first before the actors arrive. And it usually takes me uh, a little less than an hour to record the narration for, for one book, if you call it, like, you know, book one, book uh -huh. two. Three. So it takes me about an hour to record the narration. And then the actors come in and then they do their scenes, you know, and, and the editor composes it all. You know, and I take it back to the editor. And it usually takes me about a, maybe a week to put it all together with the sound effects and my narration. Kind and that's, of that's for one chapter per, in, in a book. It takes them about a week to do that. Or is it, uh, is it all four chapters for the book in one week? All four chapters. Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah so all he's, he's got to be doing almost nothing else with his time. Yeah, <laughs> this is pretty impressive stuff. Yeah, no. He once he developed a groove, you know, he in the first couple of times it took him a while, but once he he, he kind of you know we developed a shorthand, he was able to to really get it down to about a week to uh, edit edit those sixty pages, and then and like I say, then we release them. Uh, well, we released them about uh -huh. uh, you know one week at a time. So do you have do you have soundtrack clips? Do you have uh, soundtrack pieces? I mean, music, uh, music, theme music, theme music and stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, we have the theme music. Uh, that's about it. We, we definitely, I love that theme music. The guy who composed it, uh, uh, he did the, uh, one guy did the theme music, and then I had another friend of mine do the sound effects. But no, we definitely have that theme music. That theme music was just, it was so hot, so. The, uh, the subject matter, this is not a T for Teens show. This is a. Uh, this is. You don't really pull any punches. It's. It's mature. There's sex. Mature there's therapy. violence. There's sexy violence. <laughs> and, yeah. And, yeah. Yep. Yeah, uh, and uh, yeah. violins no, with saxes stuffed it. in them. Yes. Oh, cannot take you anywhere. <laughs> so yeah. uh, you. Uh, that obviously had to have been a conscious decision on your part to do that. Well, it, they came from the manga thing. And well, yeah. No breaks there. Oh, that's true. It certainly isn't. Yeah. Well, no. I, I just didn't want to be. I mean, come on. Let's not be hypocritical here. You know, we uh, we're making this kind of entertainment for um, young adults and and adults. You know, so I was very conscientious in terms of putting an M for mature audiences. You know what I mean? Because uh, uh -huh. you know, here in the West, we think. Oh, cartoons is for kids, and it's like no, 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 it's not. <laughs> no, it's not. You know, and also I wanted I wanted to tackle uh, a kind of sophisticated uh, subject matter. You know, like terrorism and the economic recovery and homophobia and and that kind of thing. So, um, mm -hmm. so uh, you know, I, that's why I wanted to put that disclaimer in for mature 
audiences. I don't, I don't think any of our stuff is gratuitous because I am I am conscientious uh, conscious conscientious of that as well. You know what I mean? Because I can get no, turned off. I noticed off. that. Right? There you know is I mean? there is some sex and there's some uh, there's some uh, violence. You step right up to the plate in episode one of book one. And uh, but well, there is there's, nothing. They're but, bad guys. They do bad, bad things. Bad guys. Yeah, they do bad oh, things. Oh, oh yeah. Bank robbers. And, yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah. But there is nothing gratuitous in it. It's not there just just uh, just, just for the purposes of titillation. It's there to advance the plot. Yeah. No. No. Absolutely. I, I, if, if you were what you're referring to, one of the uh, one of the twins uh, uh, is a, uh, a telepath. I believe, and he's and one, and so he's almost uh, attempts to uh, rape this girl until his brother stops him. Right, right. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So we step right up to the plate because I wanted to, you know, I I wanted to illustrate the fact that if people got this uh, enormous power, people are going to use it differently. You know what I mean? It, yeah. I, Having I, power doesn't necessarily mean that you automatically understand that you have a responsibility to use it wisely. Yeah, no, absolutely. With great Absol- power comes great responsibility, said Uncle Stan. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'm glad you mentioned that, Susan, because I, I, I hate it um, when they try, try to make uh, villains more empathetic or sympathetic, like in, in Spider-Man 3, when uh, the Sandman, when they introduced that whole subplot with the Sandman and his daughter, the reason why he killed Ben Parker was because he was trying to feed his daughter or something. Uh, you guys, come on. Yeah, that's, you guys remember that? I'm sorry. Yeah, that's first of all, that's not exact. That's not even canon. Right? Yeah. You know, it was just some thug. Yeah, that's I, all I it was. was. Kind of like no. Oh. Rebuild the connection. Okay, I can hear you. Can oh, you? Oh, you hear can me? hear us. All right. Yeah, good. yeah. Can you hear me? Yep, we're good. Okay. Yeah. No, we're good. No, I, I was just saying I hate when they try and make because uh, my theory is if some per- if a if a guy is a thug or or a degenerate. And he gets a uh, hold of some power, he's not going to all of a sudden change overnight. He's going to become a bigger thug or degenerate, you know, in, 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 yeah. in my mind, if that's in him. It makes you more of what you are. Absolutely. It's like what they say about money. They say money doesn't change you. Money just reveals who you are. You know, so. Please, let me reveal myself. Right. That's, <laughs> I, I know. I would like the chance to reveal myself, too. But uh, that—that's the theory behind some well, of those. Sort of that. like, uh, uh, sort of like the mask, you know, the Jim Carrey film, uh, right? And the comic of the and, same, right? Yeah, and thank you. And Loki, uh, Loki's mask, making you more of whatever you were to start with, right? Right. Very, very much the same thing. And the and the, and the main character is is a fun loving cartoon guy, and the bad guy is a big big old thug, and the little jack terrier jack russell terrier is a big bad dog <laughs> a big that. dog and a little body well, yeah aren't they all no that was awesome so tell us about some of the other people on your your casting crew uh, one of the guys that that uh, the guy that helped me create it uh, neil lewis he's uh he's a friend of mine from from howard university most of most of the people that i work with uh, I went to undergraduate with or graduate school. Like uh, Neil, he's the voice of Shango, and uh, Antonio Charity is the voice of uh, Ogun, and then another friend of mine, uh, Celestin Celestin Coronado, 
he's a um, Dominican American. Uh, he plays the voice of uh, Ricardo Gomez. And Ricardo is kind of like a hot shot young assistant district attorney who's running for mayor of New Orleans. And uh, so, uh, and I met uh, Celestin on a short film I wrote a few years ago. So we just kind of hit it off. He played one of the athletes on, on this short film that I did. So we kind of stayed in touch. And then, and then another friend of mine, her name is uh, Michelle Glavin. I met her uh, at, this, at this restaurant I used to work at called 14. And she's a phenomenal young actress. She does the voice, so she does the voice work for Jennifer Lewis, excuse me, Jennifer Willis, who is the, the reporter there uh, in New Orleans. She does the voice for Jennifer Willis as well as some of the vampire uh, voices. Ah, I see. Yeah, so you want some talented actors that I, I was lucky enough to get some talented actors who can do multiple multiple accents and voices. It sounds like you've got lightning in a bottle, Reggie. Oh, thank you. This is... Thank you. I'd like to, uh, with your permission, I'd like to play a little bit of the first part of the first episode. Sure, sure. And we'll... The Primordials, an urban fantasy created by Reginald Nelson and Neil Lewis. Book One. Who are the Primordials? Chapter One. City of Angels. It is a breezy California night as Angelinos gather at the annual Playboy Jazz Festival inside the Hollywood Bowl. The music is cool and the people are hot as patrons listen to a trumpeter swing his way to heaven. The immaculate Shannon Bechet and partner Otis Armstrong are backstage doing what they do. This the last shot? Any sign? No. Damn, we can't lose this one. This was your idea to use the man as bait, not mine. I know, I know. What about your wall hounds? They're in place. Don't worry. It ends tonight. The two men shake hands before Shannon exits to an elevator, leaving Otis alone backstage with security. In the audience, Otis views a few security guards walking with dogs to make sure the concert remains peaceful. Suddenly, he witnesses commotion in the middle section of the crowd. What the hell? After quickly running to the other side of the stage, Otis notices a large hawk swooping up and down into the crowd, causing confusion. It's on. Meanwhile, back in one of the VIP sections, Shannon is a guest of Hollywood royalty. The enormously successful movie producer, Jerry Silver. Jesus Christ. After all of these years, you'd think Hef would finally have figured out how to keep out the low lives. Look at that nonsense. Shannon looks up to see what all the noise is about when his eyes are almost so dowled out by the, the hawk. Uh, in the Whoa. scene we just heard, is that a bird? Uh -huh. They start out at the What's Hollywood going Bowl on? This place is turning into a zoo. Otis bursts in onto the scene and quickly begins ushering everyone out. All right, everyone, please follow me to the exit. To I'll explain once we reach outside. Uh, as a matter of fact, it was my friend Cat uh, Carter. Hello, Cat. If you're listening to this, uh, yes, we mentioned your name on the radio. She was saying, "Why aren't there any superheroes in Los Angeles? <laughs> what What was the big problem with that?" And I'm I'm fascinated that you chose the Hollywood Bowl and and places that are familiar uh, to people uh, here in Los Angeles as the initial setting for, for the story. 
And, uh, w- of course, we were also quite amazed to find that the Hollywood Bowl could be cleared out in about 30 seconds. <laughs> that wasn't any Hollywood Bowl I've ever been <laughs> This, the ladies and gentlemen, the magic of radio. Well, boy, now this is... It's, it gets to, it know, gets to what you were saying, you know, this, that you can do anything on radio, and, and right, it's very right. expensive to do that on film. There's, a, there's an old bit by uh, Stan Freeberg. It was. It was actually. It was. Um, it was an ad for selling radio ad time, and it was. He he just meant, just with with voice and sound effects built this whole mental picture of building an enormous, uh, hot fudge sundae in in Lake Michigan, and you know all right all right bring in the the cherry. You hear the helicopter. Oh wow. Fuh, 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 fuh. You know the whole sound effects, the whole thing, <laughs> and the, the the punchline there is try that on television. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, get it, getting back to getting back to the point of the initial setting, how did you? Uh, uh, what was it that uh, that drove that particular decision, dude? Hollywood did this Playboy well, Jazz yeah, Festival. I, well, I guess World, so. ca- World Class Festival. Weekend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's kind of what what Susan was saying the uh, the the Playboy Jazz Festival. And also uh, sticking to that issue, because when we first uh, started producing these uh, uh, these these audio dramas, Katrina, I think, had just been maybe three years old or something. You know, it, uh-huh. it had happened three years previously. So I was just going with the with the theme of they had been searching for these evacuees with this mysterious power for two two to three years. So right, uh-huh. the, the last, the last, and we call them the Aberitions. Uh, the last of these Aberitions were uh, held up here in Los Angeles, and uh, they had tracked the last of these evacuees here to L.A. And it just so happened, since these guys are, are music producers, they used the Playboy Jazz Festival as the perfect cover for them to uh, continue their hunt. Get them all in one place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Dave and uh, uh, Walter. What about the settings in your comic books? How do you how do you select the locations for your books? Well, to be perfectly honest, most of our settings are made up. Like they are places that we have been or maybe we've lived in, but they are um, they're given fictitious, fictitious names so we can screw with them any way we feel like it, and not have to and not have to deal with people saying, "Oh, well, that doesn't happen there. Or that's not the street where that's at." Like, um, I'm writing a novel also uh, about a vampire, and it's set in New Orleans, too. But my the stuff in New Orleans is there, I have to go back in my memory and make sure that the things that happened on certain streets, like Canal Street or Bourbon Street or wherever they were, that, that I do them properly because people know those places and those streets. So by doing um, fictitious names for places that we've really been, we we have a a frame of reference, but we don't get stuck with having to do something because there's something there that we don't want to deal with. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's why you know it's Metropolis and Gotham City and not New York City. You know, we do have one stereotype though. Um, in Heretics, it takes place. It starts off in, in New York, but that's because the, the people, the big baddies, took over the whole planet. So you can, you really can't uh, avoid. You have to blow up New York. New York is always first. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I got out. Those are your only options, man. (laughs) 
but um, when you when you're doing your characterization, when you're doing your characterizations, I know you, you said that like for the most part your characters are um, they're they're aware of being gods. They're not really aware of like like skin tone or whatever. But when you're when you're writing them, um, are are you aware of how you're characterizing them? And, and the reason why I ask, one of my favorite comics from the '90s was Steel. Um, and Steel was written really, really well when it was written by a Caucasian guy who only cared about the story. But when it got taken over by a black man, it was one of the owners of um, Milestones, I believe, he started writing Steel in a way that he just, he, he came off as a militant black guy who also was really smart, as opposed to a superhero who just happened to be black. So uh. when yeah. So when you're characterizing, um, are are you how how are you con- how do you concern yourself with how you characterize your your, your uh, characters? Uh, no, I I um uh, I get I, I'm mostly to be honest with you, I'm mostly uh, plot driven, you know. So uh, and I know that probably is going to sound horrible to to some to some people. Particularly, uh, my playwright friends, they because playwrights are so character-driven or, or or whatever. But my when I'm thinking of storylines, I'm usually thinking of it from a from a plot perspective. But as far as my characters, no, 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 they don't go through their lives thinking of themselves as as militant, you know, uh, black men or 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 powerful black gods or whatever. They, you know, they are who they are. You know, and uh, I don't uh, I, I don't sidestep race because these guys have lived through slavery. I mean, you you listen if you listen to the the podcast, you hear about them living and experiencing through slavery, and they even fought they fought in the Civil War and they fought in the Haitian Revolution as well. So I, I'm I'm approaching it more from a uh, from a historical uh, a cultural perspective. Than any kind of twentieth uh, century uh, politics uh, perspective, if that, ma- if that makes any sense. I don't know if I answered your. That, that makes a great deal of sense, and actually, I appreciate that because, like, when David and I are doing our writing, we're writing the story for the sake of the story. If you, right. if the character happens to be black, that's great, but he's not the big black guy with a sword. He's the guy with a sword who happens to be black. Right. Right. No. Absolutely. Absolutely. One of one of my favorite comics, actually, in the '90s, was uh, Christopher Priest's run on the Black Panther. I don't. Did you guys ever read any of that stuff? Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. Did you get a chance? Did you, the, the Susan or Jean? Did you guys ever read that? Uh, any of that? Some of it. Uh, which Chris- one? Christopher it was Priest. Uh, Christopher Black, Priest. Black Panther. When he did the Black Panther back in the '90s. Uh, in the '90s, what was I doing? Uh, in the nineties, I think I was collecting the death of Superman series. Okay. So, and I had, I had only so much money to go around and they were splattering parts of that plot line all over every title they had. (laughs) Yeah. Except Black Panther's Marvel, dear. I know. And, but uh, that's where my money was going. That's what I was saying. I see. I I mean, they even had (laughs) one episode and this is a little bit off topic here. Uh, but, uh, they even had one uh, one chapter of the story in an episode of Green Lantern. I think it was like Green Lantern 188 or something. And nobody expected 
that that issue would carry a part of the story in it, and as a result, they only did one print run. So even though the book isn't terribly well written or terribly well drawn, uh, it's the worth price a lot of money. yeah, it's worth a pile of money. Uh, you know, it's forty bucks or some silly damn thing, where everything <laughs> else might be worth double cover price at best. Let's let's let him hey, get back to but, Black. Anyway, Meanwhile, back, back at Black Panther. Back, back at Black Panther. I'm sorry to no. digress. Well, no, I I just you know personally, I was just going to say that I, I man, I really thought that was some great writing because it was he that device that Christopher Priest used uh, of having Black Panther being seen through the eyes of kind of this uh, uh, white bread, all American. Uh, uh, Government liaisons, you know, uh, was I think the character name was Ross, uh, uh, Everett Ross, or something, and that was just so cool and so clever. How you know how the guy, how they kind of played up Black Panther being both uh, a dignitary, you know, a polit, you know, a, um, a, a foreign, a foreign head of state, uh, a foreign head of state, yeah. No. Rwanda? Not Rwanda. Not Rwanda. What's the name of the kingdom he was? Wakanda. Wakanda. No, getting anyway. Getting get back to your point, Reggie. Yeah, no, I I was just uh, saying that that was some really really cool uh, comic book writing and 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 in my opinion, uh, I I think comic books you know may have may have reached their peak. You know, I'm biased because I I kind of grew up in the '80s and '90s, but I mean, during there was a time like in the '80s with Mike Grell and Frank Miller, and and then Christopher Priest. To me, Christopher Priest was the last of that kind of gritty, really rich storytelling. That uh, that I don't. I, I'm so disappointed when I read comics now. I feel like they can't. They don't know how to end stories. Is it, am I going crazy? The problem here, is that today's comic book writers read learn their craft by reading comic books, not by reading the classics. And I believe it was Stan Lee who exhorts young writers always always read the classics learn oh, how wow. the story is put together well it's the That's same cool. thing for uh artists um i've seen a lot of artists who learned to draw by looking at comic books and mm. that's not where you go to learn it you learn it by sitting in figurative drawing classes and learning from illustrators who know something about anatomy uh otherwise you get a life field who I don't know what species of alien he's drawing, but it's it's not humans as I know it. Oh uh, yeah, oh <laughs> uh, yeah. He's I I don't think the the spinal columns on his characters don't function in according to any laws of physics I've ever Can encountered. Kind of change the laws of physics. Kind of change the laws of no. Uh, but uh, it, I would say I would say that with respect to that deep emotional connection uh, where you get into the bottom of it and you feel all the rough edges where things should fit together, but they're grinding because of the conflicts in the character. Right. Uh, Len Wein still... He still got it. He still got it. My God. I read... Um, uh, uh, but he be- was re- Before Watchmen, Ozymandias... Mm-hmm. Um, which I think came out about six months ago now. 
Yeah. And, uh, oh, my God, was it good. But he comes out of that same group, you say, from the... Yeah, he does. He comes 70s, out of... 70s, 80s. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Is, I don't even know, it's, uh, on a little bit of a side note, I don't know, is, is Mike Grell still writing? Because I used to love that guy growing up. I did, up. too. I, I really, I've lost track of him. Let's, Guys, we'll look it up. do you know Walter? Um, no, I, I don't know. Um, and, of course, Googling while, while doing the show is cheating. So we'll <laughs> No, no, no. Please, please. As I look at Google right now. <laughs> you know, that's the advantage. Uh, back in the old days, uh, when they were doing a radio show called Hour 25, they used to rely on something called the mass mind. And people would, uh, uh, people would have to telephone them and give them information over the phone if they couldn't find information like that. Now we've got Google. Google. So it's a much... We've got MikeGrell.com. MikeGrell.com. He's going to be... He was just at the Emerald City Comic Con. Oh, yeah, he was just at Emerald City Comic Con, so apparently he's still in the game and still writing. Okay, good. So, and the Emerald City Comic Con was just last weekend as we record this. Uh, we're recording this for later broadcast. Uh, today is March uh, 6th, 2013. Um, we are coming up on the end of our hour, Reggie and Walter and uh, uh, Mike Carl uh, David. Mike is doing the artwork for the Arrow digital comic. Oh. Arrow based on the uh, CW series. Okay, the great, yeah. Yeah, okay, cool. That was a talented man, that guy. Oh, yeah. It still And still is. Still is. Still is. So what can we look forward to? Uh, how many stories are in your story arc? Or do you well, know that? Have you planned that out yet? Well, uh... Because it, right seem, it seems like you could go a long time with what you've set up. Yeah, no, 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 absolutely, absolutely. You can go uh, back with the real story, the real stories of, of Ogun and Shango, too. Yeah, 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 no, absolutely, absolutely. So much of that stuff has been, has been untapped. Uh, but as far, as far as what I'm trying to focus on now, I, I really want to, uh, I'm going to, like I said, I'm going to start a Kickstarter campaign probably uh, in, a, in a couple weeks, around on, uh, March 18th, I believe. And uh, I'm really going to try and turn uh, four of our most popular episodes, which was the the vampires, the moon over Bourbon Street. I'm going to turn that into a into an animated short. Uh So I'm looking to try and raise money for that and probably turn it, turn the primordials into an anime series. That would be like my my wildest dream. You know, that would be pretty amazing, you know, to kind of turn it into a into an anime series. So that's that's what I'm hoping for, you know. That's what I'm hoping for to get it get get the thing animated, and uh, so people so I can, it'll grow my fan base obviously, and, and people can really really experience uh, these characters on a whole nother level. That's a lot of out of work animators right about now. <laughs> Sadly, <laughs> we have had a marvelous time discussing the primordials with you, Reggie Reginald Nelson, a co-creator of the primordials. Uh, your co-creator is Neil Lewis. Um, the Primordials is an urban fantasy serial podcast based on the pantheon of gods inspired by the Yoruba culture of West Africa. 
and uh, you can find it on theprimordials.com, and there are about 16 episodes currently up, and you're working on more as we speak. It has been a pleasure having you with us. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jane and, and Susan. I really appreciate it. And Walter and, and uh, David, thank you very much for joining us as well. Uh, it, was, it was great having you with us as well. Uh, David and Walter are with Offshoot Comics. They're the brains behind Offshoot Comics. You can go to their website at offshootcomics.com. They are currently producing five different comic book titles and have some in the can already, or some in the can, that's a film expression. They have, uh, they have some in print already, and you can find them at various local comic book conventions in the Southern California area. WonderCon. And, and WonderCon. 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 I think I'm going to be. I'm going to look you guys up, uh, Walter and David. I think I'm. I'm going down to Comic Con. Yeah, please uh, sure. yeah, come by. WonderCon. And their yeah. logo is a. It'd be great to meet you. <clears throat> their logo is a yellow circle with a red stylized S in the middle of it for Offshoot Comics. And it doesn't look like the Superman. Symbol and it doesn't look like a enough. Superman symbol. It's, it's <laughs> unique it's and original. It's the black Superman. I, I like it. It's the Kirby it's Ginson. Good. So that is our show for the evening. Uh, this show will air on the uh, 16th of March. No. It won't? Oh, yes. Yeah, it will. Yes. It's, it, this show will air the 16th of March, uh, 2013, at 9 p.m. on Saturday. And, um, and by the time you hear this... By the time you hear this, missed, you'll have missed you've it. You've just missed you've it. You've just missed the show. <laughs> And with that, I think we can find the button that turns this off. And uh, Oh, can I push the button? Oh, can you push the button? Can okay, push, go, push it. You have been listening to Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time for a journey into science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. Your hosts have been Krypton Radio General Manager Gene Turnbow and Executive Producer Susan Fox. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The part of the science officer was played by Mark Schurmeister. The part of the engineer was played by Christopher B. McGuire. The navigator was played by Christine Cherry. And the role of the captain was voiced by science fiction writer Larry Niven. Join us next week on Saturday, 9 p.m. Pacific, for the next episode of The Event Horizon, where the impossible happens.